All right, so this is Psalm 83, and I want you to understand this is a thousand years before, before uh, Christ will be born, but I think God is telling you about what's going to happen at the end, at the last days, that a confederation of nations will, will conspire together, nations that will not normally be confederated, but who will be able to confederate together because of their hatred of Israel to destroy Israel. And so this is what I believe replicates the tento. So if you read along in Psalm 83, O God, do not keep silent. Be not quiet, O God, be not still. See how your enemies are astir, how your foes rear their heads. With cunning they conspire against your people. They plot against those you cherish. Come, they say, let us destroy them as a nation, that the name of Israel be remembered no more. With one mind they plot together, they form an alliance against you, the tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites of Moab and the Hagrites, Gebel of Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the people of Tyre, even Assyria had joined them to lend strength to the descendants of Lot. Do to them as you did to Midian, as you did to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who perished at Endor and became like refuse on the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all the princes like Zeba and Zalmunna. Um, and, and so you see there as you go through that psalm, uh, it speaks about the, the request that God will destroy these enemies. Now, this becomes important for you to understand it because these are countries who would never in any way confederate. But you see that in the last days, the ten toes, all right, as you see this and as you see the little horn coming up, the little horn being the Antichrist, the only way the Antichrist is arising, he's going to come from one of, I believe, one of these territories. Now, people ask me, well, what are the modern-day equivalents of these territories? I'm going to give it to you right now. And it all, it's all countries that surround Israel. First one mentioned is Edom. That's southern Jordan. The Ishmaelites refer to all of the Arab states. The Moab is central Jordan. Hagarnes is Egypt. Gebel is Lebanon, Ammon is northern Jordan, Amalek is the Sinai Peninsula, Phil the uh, Philistines, Philistia is the Gaza Strip, Tyre is Lebanon, and Asser is Syria and Iraq. Sounds like today's newspaper, doesn't it? So what, what you're hearing here is that we don't know exactly uh, how these nations will be put together, but that effectively is the confederation that will determine to destroy Israel finally and wipe her out as a memory. Uh, and from that, uh, from one of those countries, I believe, uh, the Antichrist will arise. And we're going to speak at length about the Antichrist. We're also going to speak about the rapture, because without the rapture, the, uh, the Antichrist is not coming. It's the rapture that pulls the Holy Spirit, the church, out of this world, and the, uh, the Holy Spirit is the restrainer of evil. And once the restrainer of evil is taken out of this world, then look out. Okay? Look out. It's going to be ugly. Um, and so uh, I wanted to tie that up so that you, you get an, uh, 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 an idea of how all these things are fitting together. Now we're in Daniel chapter 7, the same uh, uh, prophecy that we had started last week. We're going to drill down now and focus on two critical verses in Daniel 7. This becomes very important uh, and will become critical to Jesus as well. Uh, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one 
like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Let's understand how important this is. This is the first articulated vision, uh, speaking of Jesus Christ. This is 600 years B.C. In other aspects of the Bible in the Old Testament, as we'll study, there's typological references to Jesus. In some, there are Christophanies, meaning a, a pre-incarnate uh, vision of Jesus. But this now speaks directly of who Jesus is, what he will be, uh, and how the world will ultimately worship him. And what an incredible picture this is. Uh, as you see him actually walking into the presence of God the Father, the ancient of days, uh, and all nations bowing, and all people bowing, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion. This is not like the other countries and states that you've seen in the visions, how they've come and gone from Babylon to Persia and, uh, and, and to Greece, and ultimately to Rome, but, and even the confederation of ten, 10 states. All of them will come and will go and will pass away like a wilted flower. But the, the dominion and kingdom of Jesus Christ will be everywhere. Uh, and so as you see this, this vision, uh, it, you would almost expect at this point that, that, that in the prophecy we're speaking about God the Father. But instead, suddenly, it takes a different turn. It says, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And the reference to, uh, in, in that translation, like a son of man, uh, most readily translated as like a man, okay? Like a man. Like a man, but God. And that's, this is the expression, this is the terminology that Jesus used himself the most in reference to himself. Jesus used the title Son of Man 81 times. 81 times. So this is important that Jesus is affirming to us the authenticity of Daniel, the authenticity of the prophecies, Jesus very much believed in it, he authenticated it, and he's doing it here in a way. And so this presents a vision of Jesus not found anywhere else in the Old Testament. Now, I want to go through this with you so that you get an idea of the references to Jesus and to a Godhead that's more than one. Clearly, as I say in the outline, there are places in the Old Testament where we are given a glimpse of Christ. Uh, and the first intimation in Scripture uh, of a plurality in the Godhead is in the first verse of the Bible where the plural name for God, Elohim, occurs. Now, I'm giving you the original Hebrew translation, Elohim. Uh, and that verse, in the first verse of the Bible as it describes God, uh, uh, is important because it's a plural aspect of God. Now, students of Hebrew, and I've read this, Will, will say, point out rightly, that this does not necessarily mean that there's more than one a Godhead, uh, that, that it means a, a plurality, uh, and they, they say it means, well, the God of all gods. And, and certainly that, that's, that's right. But if you drill down and look further, because you never just make a, a, a theological pretext on one verse, you look at more than one verse, uh, later in the same chapter, turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, look at verse 
uh, 26. Then God said, let us, underline that please, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Let us in our image. Who's he talking to? He's talking to Christ. He's talking to the Holy Spirit. All right? And so what you see there is right there early on, uh, clearly in the first book of the Bible in Genesis, there is a plurality in the Godhead. Now, later, turn to Genesis chapter 11. I find this fascinating, as you, as you do. I hope you find it as fascinating as I do. Look at Genesis chapter 11, uh, verse 7. This is now when, the, when uh, uh, the Tower of Babel is being built, and you know the story, the people of the earth decided that uh, they wanted to build a bridge up to heaven, build it as high as they could so they could be like God. Uh, how about that? Isn't that a shock? Uh, and so in verse 7, uh, verse 6 we'll start, verse 5. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, if, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. How about that? You understand why we have different languages. Let us go down. Again, a plurality in the Godhead, all right? Important to understand this. Um, and so, again, drilling down through Scripture. Another intimation of the existence of a second a uh, person in the Godhead is the appearance of a figure who is described as the angel of the Lord or the messenger of the Lord, and you will see that from time to time in Scripture. Uh, the first reference for this uh, is in uh, Genesis, again, as it relates to Abraham. And you know the study of Abraham. This is when Abraham now goes to try to take uh, rescue Lot uh, from Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, and so as he does this, um, he meets three angels, Attend, you know, putatively angels, but we know that one of them does not seem to be an angel. And if you turn to Genesis chapter 18, all right, Genesis chapter 18, uh, verse 16, when the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. So I want you to get this picture, these three angelic beings. Then the Lord said, the Lord said, so one of them is not an angel. One of them was, I believe, Jesus. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Shall I hide from him? Shall I keep it secret? And ultimately, the determination is made, uh, no, I'm not going to hide from him. I'm going to tell him I'm going to dis destroy uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. And you know, you get into that great uh, lesson where Abraham begins to bargain with God. If there's 50 righteous, if there's 40, if there's 30, you know that, uh, trying to get God to change his mind. He gets down to 10 and he stops. And you know that if he had gone down to one, God would have uh, listened to that, all right? But he, and we, set, we set boundaries, God doesn't. And so um, it's important. And so here you see that, the reference to the fact that there is obviously an ongoing presence of the Godhead, Jesus Christ himself in this world. Uh, and so it's important, you see it there. Uh, and, and so we see it also, Furthermore, we see it uh, uh, in the third chapter of Daniel, 
where we know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three Jewish boys who were thrown into the fiery furnace because they will not bow down to the giant statue that Nebuchadnezzar makes. They will not worship another idol. Um, and so the, the fiery furnace is, is heated up. The soldiers throw the three Jewish boys in. The heat is so bad that it consumes the, the, the soldiers themselves. And when Nebuchadnezzar looks in to the furnace, he sees four people walking around completely unharmed. And he makes the famous statement that uh, one looks like the son of a god. Now, that's coming from the mouth of a pagan. Uh, and, and so you see this, uh, and, it's, and it's, it's, it's amazing. Um, we know also that there's a reference in Isaiah that uh, Isaiah himself uh, sees a vision of Jesus. I want you to turn to uh, Isaiah chapter 6. Verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings, and two, with two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and two they were flying, and they were calling one to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, all right, you say, well, okay, well, Possibly that's a vision of God, the Father, but we, we learn in the Gospel of John, tur turn to John chapter 12, John chapter 12, verse 41. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. So how about that? There's John, obviously an eyewitness with Jesus Christ, having many intimate conversations, I'm sure, with Jesus. And as a result of that, he gets confirmation that the vision that Isaiah had was of Jesus Christ. All right? He saw it of Jesus Christ himself. And so you see this. Uh, and so it's, it's important for you to get an understanding of this. Uh, and so why does this all come together? Why is it so important that we see this image of, of Jesus elevated and the fact that he will have dominion? over all men, all states. Well, it is because the entire theme of Daniel is that man has elevated himself in his own mind. All of these uh, countries, all of these kings are, are filled with pride, lifting themselves up. And you see this articulated by Babylon and, and by Nebuchadnezzar. And God cuts them down, every single one of them. Not one will survive Till the end, they will all be exalted for a short time and, and will come to an end. Uh, and, and so, yes, maybe at early stages it appears as if man's kingdoms are greater than God. Perhaps at that early stage it seemed so to Nebuchadnezzar because Jerusalem had fallen. They had become captive. All the things in the temple had been taken out. Uh, and yet God is still in charge of history. And that's what the book of Daniel is about. Uh, and so that is why this title, Son of Man, is so critical. It means that God is fully man and fully God. The only way mankind would be saved is if there would be one perfect sacrifice once and for all. One 
perfect sacrifice. Well, it couldn't be a perfect sacrifice of an animal because millions of animals had been slain under Jewish tradition. And ongoing sin went on and on and on. Year after year, they had to do it. But only when God himself would become man and that man would be perfect in every way and that man would be put on the cross and slain as the once and perfect sacrifice for all time that would cover all sins from the beginning of time to the end of time, Jesus Christ. That's why this title is so critical, Son of Man. And so here we see Jesus used this title 81 times. Fascinating, 81 times. Now, there were many titles that related to God himself uh, that we see in the Bible, many titles for Jesus in the New Testament. He is the Lord, the Christ, the Messiah, the Good Shepherd, the bridegroom, he is also Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the first and the last. Uh, and these are many titles of God the Father that are given to Jesus as well. He is the great I Am. And you know Jesus used that at, at one time. But Jesus really never used these titles on an ongoing basis uh, for himself. Others gave them to him. Uh, but uh, he did not even use the word Messiah relating to himself, except on one occasion when he was speaking to the Samaritan woman. Let's just look at that for context. Look at John chapter 4. And, you know, we studied this. It's a great picture here. Jesus is speaking to this woman, uh, the Samaritan woman at the well. Um, and, and she's having this colloquy with you. And she said with him, and at some point uh, uh, she says, the woman said, verse 25, the woman said, and he's speaking about theological pretexts that we're talking about, and the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Now, this isn't spoken by a Jew. It's not spoken by a rabbi. It's not spoken by a Pharisee. It's spoken by a Samaritan woman, a despised race of people, almost considered half-breeds by Jews. They would not even walk through that territory of Samaria. They would go way out of their way because they believed that the Samaritans were uncleaned. They completely disrespected them. So here's this woman, a Samaritan, from, from this race of people the Jews despise. Not only that, but she's been married five times and now living with a guy. So here it is that she violates every possible theological premise that you would have for holiness, and yet Jesus seeks her out. This is the person Jesus speaks to. Uh, and talks to. No self-respecting Jew would ever even talk to a woman. Never mind a Samaritan. Never mind somebody with this kind of past. But you see how God embraces the lost? I can't emphasize this to you enough. Don't go around making judgments about who people are and what they should be and how you need to contact them. God reaches out to the lost, the downtrodden, those on the very bottom of the food chain, when you start thinking of yourself as you're up in high and mighty territory on the food chain and you don't need to be affiliated with those people, stop it. Ask God to forgive you. Take that spirit out of your mind because you're acting like a Pharisee. You need to reach out to the most depraved and lost people that there were. And in fact, this week, my son was giving me an outline of his, of his Christmas message, and he's speaking about the shepherds. And the shepherds were despised. No self-respecting Jew would have anything to do with a shepherd. They were outcasts. 
They were considered unclean. And yet God used the shepherds to bring the message of hope that Jesus Christ had come into this world. Why would God do that? Because this is how God is. He elevates the lost. He raises up those on the bottom. And that's who he reaches. Because those on the top think that they're pretty good already. Right? I'm pretty good already. I'm a good father. I'm a good husband. I'm a lot better than the guy down the street. He's a loser. Instead of looking at the guy down the street, looking at Jesus Christ in the mirror and see what you are. That's what God wants from us. This is the message. And so you see here, as he speaks to this Samaritan woman, and she makes this theological premise about what the Messiah will be, who he will be. She hit it on the head. The Messiah, when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus says to her in verse 26, then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Whoa. How's that? I am the Messiah. Now, this is amazing. Uh, Jesus doesn't say this um, to, to anybody else. He's very careful about that. Uh, but he did it here. Um, and, and so you see this. And the other time is when he's on trial, uh, and the high priest confronts him, and, and because they can't convict Jesus, they have no evidence, they have no testimony, they have no witnesses. And so uh, the high priest, Caiaphas, says, are you the son of God? Are you the son of God? And of course, Jesus is not going to lie. And, and, and Jesus says, it is as you say. It is as you say. And it was at that point that it says that Caiaphas just ripped his clothing, ripped his clothing, and said, this is a blasphemy. He must die. We don't see any, we don't have any other witnesses that we need. Uh, and so you understand exactly what this is all about. And so Jesus didn't use these other titles. He didn't use these other titles. And there was a good reason why he didn't use these other titles. Because if he called himself the Messiah, the Jewish people had already concocted in their minds what their Messiah would be. Their Messiah would be a great political general, a soldier, a warrior. He would be someone who would come in, who would fight Rome and throw off the, the embrace of Rome and the heel of Rome on the Jewish people. He would free them. And that is not what God had in mind for his Messiah. You see how, how mistaken we are in our own human uh, understanding? That's not the Messiah. The only Messiah that we truly need is a Messiah that's going to deliver us from sin. A, a Messiah that's going to eliminate the, the death that we come with by being human beings and give us life everlasting. That's the role of the Messiah, the Son of God. And so you understand this and you see this. Uh, as Jesus walks into the Holy of Holies, and all of these people, all of these angels bow and see him sitting at the right hand of God. Furthermore, in that reference to Caiaphas, uh, when, when Jesus identified himself as, as the Son of Man and a Son of God, uh, Jesus replied, yes, it is as you say, but I say to all of you in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Take a look at that, if you would. Matthew 26. Matthew 26, verse 64. 
Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied, but I say to all of you in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. What is that about? Again, a reference to Daniel and the prophecies of Daniel. And what it means is this, that in the last days there will be a second coming. There will be a time when Jesus will return to earth. His feet will be on the earth. This is not the rapture. The rapture will come first. But after that, after the seven-year period of time, Jesus will return. He will return with all of us. We will be behind him as Jesus will fight the enemies of evil, the, those of evil, the enemies seeking to destroy Israel, the Antichrist, and he will appear from the clouds of heaven, sitting at the right hand of God as he comes back to this world with all of us, millions upon millions of saints in the army of God as he stands, uh, really, as the Lion of Judah. He's no longer the baby in the manger. <laughs> you got it? It's not the baby in the manger. It's the Lion of Judah, and he's coming back, and there aren't going to be any prisoners. You understand? And the Bible tells us that he'll speak the word. You understand? The word will come out of his mouth, and that word will destroy hundreds of millions of people, whereas evil is perpetuated on this world. As you understand, because once the Holy Spirit is taken out of this world, as it will be taken out of this world at the rapture, and we'll talk about the rapture, once the, once the Holy Spirit is taken out of this world, the restrainer of evil is no longer present. Let me tell you, folks, there is a restrainer of evil right now. If you think things are bad, you have no idea how much worse they're going to be. You understand? You have no idea how much worse it's going to be. But God is going to take us out of the world. That's why I'm not concerned about this. I study it, but I'm not going to be here to see it. And you're not going to be here to see it because God is going to take his church out of this world. But what's going to be left is going to be bad. It's going to be real bad. But there will be a time when it will come to an end. And you see this. And all of this, all of this is tied up in this title, Son of Man. And so here's Jesus referring to himself as the Son of Man, coming right out of the prophecy of Daniel. He'll refer to himself 81 times in this way, the Son of Man. Uh, and so it gives you hope and assurance that the Bible is true, that the prophecies are true, that God loves you and he'll never abandon you, that you'll, he'll be with you till the end. You understand truly what the role of the Messiah is, what it's all about. And there is an assurance and peace in our heart that he holds us in the palm of his hand, that no one, no power, no evil, no principality, no one can take us out of the hand of God. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you, Lord, for the words that you've given us, for the assurance that you've given us. I thank you for Jesus, Father. I thank you for the fact that you understood we needed a Savior, and in your grace and mercy, you gave us one. Lord, I thank you so much for all these lessons. I ask you now to protect our people. Let these words resonate in our heart this week, Lord, as we continue to grow closer to you, and bring them back uh, as we continue to study your word. We put all of these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you all.